Welcome to the Magic Hour, a safe haven for lost stories and curious folk. Hi. To start out our second season, we wanted to dedicate an episode to our connections to visual history. We wanted to gift our listeners with some knowledge about things we think about all the time, so it's almost easy to take for granted all that we know about art. And art movements. Mm. We've spent a lot of hours looking and thinking about why the art we love is so powerful to us. So Rudo and I are going to talk about the art that moves us and the movements it became a part of. We've tasked ourselves to pick just two kindred spirits that we've been drawn to. Artists that have influenced influenced us, but only two. <laughs> Woohoo. Okay. So here's a thought. Art movements are to art as genres are to music. Um, we exist within this large cultural context. History is defined by contextualized events that bring us great change. Can be fast, can be gradual. And we're defined by what crops up in consequence of those changes. And then we label it. Yeah, and putting art into categories can be illuminating and helpful and also limiting. Mm -hmm. We're going to share some insights with you about art, but we'll take some liberties. Yeah. Pixie and I have two distinct categories to share with you, two art movements. And we'll create a little journey for you, a learning session. <laughs> In today's class, <laughs> we'll tell you some creative stories about the movements and our two characters, ones that have touched our lives deeply. So, Rudo, why don't you start with your movement? Tell us about it. I chose surrealism. Mm -hmm. Nice. Makes sense. <laughs> that, that tracks. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you <laughs> Um, to keep us from meandering too far, we've got a little Q&A. Yeah. So tell us about it a little. Uh, what type of art is associated with it when you think about it? Well, what's great about surrealism is that it's all the art forms, photography, writing, um, theater, music, paintings, collage, drawing, sculpture. Did I say all that already? But like it is what defines surrealism is kind of the mindset and psychology of it and there are some kind of tricks and t like um processes that you can prep your mind to get you into the surrealist mindset um you know you can become a surrealist artist very easily by following some key attributes that were being played around with at this time mm -hmm. um but what is expressed in surrealism or in surrealist art um, is really hard to define. I mean, there's just so many different styles of surrealist art. But I think one key aspect about surrealism was this concept of the unconscious, of dreams, of um, unshackling our mind from logic and compartmentalization and um, moral codes and societal structures that limit our potential, limit our creative capacity. Um, so during this time, like the, um, surrealism is a movement that actually has a very distinct starting point, and that's yeah. um, Andre Breton's um, Surrealist Manifesto. And in that manifesto, 
Breton talks about this um, idea of um, um, automatism. Automatism. It's a very hard word. It's a psycho. <laughs> it's a psychoanalytical term for a state of thought that's unhampered, like I was talking mm -hmm. about. Yeah. And um, it's very much inspired by Sigmund Freud um, and the book from 1899 called The Interpretation of Dreams. And it's all about dream work. And Freud and his cronies legitimize dream work outside of church or tribal contexts into this like waking life version of lucid mm -hmm. dreaming flow. And so all the art that kind of stems from surrealism is like either working with your dreams, working with what crops up, you know, like the, the impulse is authentic. You know, you don't have to overthink it to be a surrealist artist. <laughs> yeah. And when you're thinking about this time period, which is, seems like 1900s, mid 1924 late, is the surrealist. Yeah. So it's after World War One. Big um, deal is World War One. Oh my yeah. God. The, the level of devastation. Yeah. And trauma. And trauma. And so what kind of came out of that nihilism and Dadaism, the sense of like nothing, mean, it doesn't, nothing means anything anymore. And we're, we, what is Dadaism? Yeah, Dada is the art that came like directly out of the war. And it was people really grappling with meaning, as in we have lost all meaning. Yeah. Life isn't the, precious. The birth of collage also. Yes. Yeah, so collage is also a really important um, tool yeah. for surrealist artists because the idea is that you're putting together um, impromptu images that weren't created to be together, but now are together. And so you're kind of breaking the norm, you're breaking patterns, you're breaking expectations. And also it's like find, found art, which is like, everything is kind of like getting away from like the classist structure, like the bourgeois yeah. into like everyday found objects. So would you say this was kind of in a way, a rebellion against um, more traditional forms of art? Because I feel like I think Absolutely. of that one. Absolutely. Yeah. absolutely art is for everyone even yeah. women yep. <laughs> so there's like a whole um offshoot of um women surrealist artists who like deconstructed everything including gender norms so there's a lot yeah, of I was gonna say even non-binary yeah like just yeah all, yeah yeah and a lot of like um rejecting uh monogamy and traditional relationship structures you can absolutely see why i love this era <laughs> Yeah. And so like, I want to know a little more about like, if you were going to pick some like colors, shapes, symbols, what's, what kind of art, what kind of visual cues are, are associated yeah. with this movement? What I think of say? like the melting forms of Dali and the twisted figures. And I think of like, um, these weird, strange, um, so there's this term biomorphic, um, and, um, Juan Miro's work has mm. a lot of biomorphism. And what that means is like, I can kind of tell this is a thing, but I can't identify the thing. It feels like it's a creature or a living organism, but it has no real yeah. um, label or identification. Is it a foot? Is it an earlobe? Is it a worm? Who knows? The and viewer gets to decide. Exactly. And the, yeah. this kind of free association. Um, but then the other thing that I think about, and, and she might be pissed off at me for saying this, but Frida Kahlo, <laughs> her work is feels so surrealist because she's... Yeah. Um, you know, but it's magical realism as well, which is like a mm -hmm. very um, Latin experience. Mm -hmm. um, just this, but the, all of these like motifs of your inner world being brought into the outer world to express itself. Um, yeah. So I think of like a, an absurd 
object, either painted Mm -hmm. hyper-realistically or not, Mm -hmm. that makes you question the motives of the person that's creating it. Because most often they're working with things that are troubling them. You know, in dream work, you're trying to use symbols to objectify either your trauma or things that you're running away from. So you're facing the unfaceable. You're trying to know the unknowable. You know, this is like a real deep time of the unconscious. Yeah. And thinking about this huge violent war that had just happened, it makes a lot of sense that artists would be like, what have we been doing all this time? It's time to face what's going on. Absolutely. Kind of attitude. Um, so materials, we said writing, anything. we said music, anything. Yeah. Found objects, anything. Truly, truly. And then that voice of the movement that speaks to you, to sum it up, what would you say? The poetry of dreams, mm-hmm. the brave new world, the the sense that um, you can create the world that you want to be a part of. It's There's like a level, there's an overlap of like shamanism and the occult and magic. Um and there is an overlap between artists that are magical and surrealist. Um, I also just think of like equity. Like there's no, you know, like female surrealists actually kind of gifted the world surrealism to a large extent. Um, yeah, I think of um, exercises that prepare your brain, prepare your consciousness. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I love to do that gets me into the legacy of surrealism is um, a game called Exquisite Corpse. And Mm -hmm. it's a collaborative game Mm -hmm. where you fold up a piece of paper into three segments and someone has the head, someone has the abdomen or body, and someone has the legs. And the idea is that you pass your paper around and you can't see what was drawn before you, but you're connecting this body and at the end, it is what it is. And so that that to me just sums up surrealism, the sense of like, I'm just going to go with whatever comes to mind. And that's going to be the authentic truth of this moment. And it doesn't have to be pretty. But it also like gets you into like absurdity and joy and impromptu and, and collaborative. Like artists are collaborative. And everybody that we love kind of s- circulated in a in a circle, so to speak. Yeah. And influenced each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's a really important time in our history. And yeah, so there's this woman in surrealism, she's British, mm-hmm. um, Ethel Colhoun. Mm-hmm. And heard of her. she really connects um, like Druidry and Celtic wisdom, like animism and surrealism. So she was using um, imagery and philosophies from Druidry and, and, and other for, like um, Vedic traditions, Kundalini. She was like getting, she was very exposed to a lot of different worldviews and philosophies. And she was bringing that into her art and making like deeply, also like a lot of surrealists are like super sexual. So she was making like deeply sexual art motifs, paintings with like jutting rocks and like cavernous mossy caves and like, you know, this idea that um, symbols are more provocative than the real thing. Like, she Do was, like, know, perfect. What time period was she from? Was she from the actual, like, when yeah. it was birth? Yeah, yeah, oh, I didn't, I've never heard of her before. I have to look her up. Um, I have went down a massive rabbit hole of surrealism <laughs> when we were prepping for this. So I got to expose myself to um, the British female surrealists, 
which did a really good job of bringing surrealist art all around the globe. They really did globalize it. And this is where, you know, the cool part about movements comes to light, which is so interesting how it was happening all around the globe, that consciousness woke up to this concept around the same time. And I think yeah. that's very neat, collective consciousness. Yeah, and the and the um the exception or the the acknowledgement that we have an id, that we have like this shadow repressed self and we want to play with it, come out yeah. into the light. Integrate, yes. integrate. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's my um art movement, surrealism. And I'd love to hear about what art movement you chose, Pixie. And I believe that you've decided to go with two artists, kindred spirits, who also conveniently sort of fall within the realm of the movement that you chose. So what is your movement? Yes. Um, my movement is symbolism, which isn't, it's like a cousin or like a sibling of um surrealism it feels they're very similar nice. actually i guess symbolism would be like the grandfather because it came before oh, okay um so symbolism is 1880 to 1910 approximately oh nice okay um yeah and it began as a literary movement in france <clears throat> uh, so ah, both of okay. these both of these movements are european yeah and um, kind of written by french like manifestos written by french people <laughs> Which is interesting, right? Yeah. And they all feed off of each other. So clearly when I was listening to you talk more about surrealism, I was like, symbolism must have been feeding into this a little bit. Absolutely. Because we, so, we are informed by what comes before us. Eh? It comes before. Yeah. Um, and so to me, when you look at the word symbolism, the word symbol is really important here. Mm. What is a symbol and why would a whole art movement form around it? And to me... Uh, they're powerful talismans of deeper ideas and feelings um, and a core element of magic. And many oh. of the images that I look at that are associated with symbolism have a flavor of fantasy within them. So some core, you know, philosophy, yeah. historical context info for you. Um, there is this dissatisfaction with, quote, the spiritual decline of the modern world. Mm. And that the idea of socialism wasn't really working out as people had hoped. Mm -hmm. So there is this kind of like, people were not happy. And it's at the forefront of modernism. So mm -hmm. it was using abstract ideas to express, uh, express psychological truth. Gotcha. So that's and your that, philosophy, abstract, mm -hmm. abstracting something down to its core truth. Right. Yes. Which, again, similar to surrealism, you know. And the idea that behind the physical world is a spiritual reality. So taking the ineffable, like dreams and visions, and giving it form. Mm. There's another quote I loved. And it's an attitude towards subject matter rather than a movement. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Emphasis on emotions, feelings, ideas, and subjectivity rather than what is real. Mm -hmm. And I'm using real in quotes. Yes. <clears throat> so what about that moves you? What speaks to you about that? Well, I think it's because I think there's a couple of reasons. Um, I think it's as I was reading about the time period, uh, a reaction against the moralism, rationalism and materialism of the 1880s, the end of the century, actually. Um, I feel like that's happening now <laughs> and I think it's repeating itself. So it would make sense 
that I would identify with the symbolist art movement. Um, I felt I found myself thinking that word kindred spirit. I was like, oh, I probably would have if they came here, they'd be like, yep, it's time for the symbolist movement again. Mm. Um, because I think there is a dissatisfaction. And I think there has been for a while from our, you know, in art school and, and beyond, people were probably feeling that way. And then um, it being a means of escape. And I, I immediately mm. thought of Tolkien because there's mm. a quote. There's a quote from Tolkien. And the quote is, fantasy is escapist and that is its glory. If a soldier is imprisoned by the enemy, don't we consider it his duty to escape? If we value the freedom of mind and soul, if we're partisans of liberty, then it is our plain duty to escape and to take as many people with us as we can. Now, you know, I love that because I love fantasy. Uh, I think escapism is something I definitely identify with. I think it's also sometimes not a good idea because you abandon people and then nothing changes. But I think that, like, escapism can also be a kind of uh, way of liberating yourself because it shakes you shakes off the things that you think you have to do. Mm-hmm. It's it's like a, it's like a symbol. Symbolism is like a symbol of um, taking off the shackles of a system that's outdated and that's numbing and that's making us dehum- dehumanizing our culture and reconnect with the parts of us you can't see. Yeah, um, it totally makes sense. This um, deeper grasp of dehumanization in this era you know you've got industrial mm-hmm. right um, war breaking down of um social and class structures this is this is the era yeah it is and it's interesting because it's right before world war one you know mm-hmm. but they also had this there's they were also feeling separate from the bourgeoisie they were also feeling this like frustration with that materialistic cap- capitalist cu- kind of culture i guess yeah. Anti-materialist, you know. So that, I, you know, so I think, and also music was a big part of this too. Um, so there's another piece of this. There's music. It's huge. That um, they were they were interested in assimilating music into art. Assimilating music yep. into art. Explain yep. that. Um, musical methods of organizing compositions, repeating elements that unify the work. They were interested in... Um, spiritual forces in music mm. trying to put inarticulate experiences into some kind of sensory form oh snap. um so i instantly think of fantasia oh, um yeah. but the artist i've chosen this lithuanian artist uh was a composer and made pieces of art about or from or kind of in synergy with his music <gasps> um so oh, this is cool we've got our yes, first multidisciplinary artist oh heck yeah um so you know another piece of this that i wanted to say is that you know when we talk about the art that i feel is associated with the movement they feel like dreams the work feels like dreams right and dreams works in symbols so that um, this is tracking for me yeah it's tracking and it's not that different from surrealism i think surrealism was just like the next version um yeah. it took it, it took it one step further in response to one of the worst world wars we you know in that time period just really bad war that was so brutal. So they're definitely feeding off of each other, you know? Um, and so it was the turn of the century. The world was changing. And these artists felt like the emphasis on spirituality and intuition is, was being abandoned. So they made art that channeled it. And when I look deeper at the birth of symbolism, like I said, I can relate. I think it's happening now. So um, 
Should I? I'll go into my artist. Yes. Tell us about an artist of this movement. (laughs) So uh, he's Lithuanian. Um, I'm trying my best to pronounce his name correctly. Uh, It's Mikalojus Konstantinas, and then it's Cherlionis. And he was alive from 1875 to 1911. And Lithuania, uh, I didn't know much about it. It's just this uh, country of Northeastern Europe. It's like on the edge of Poland. Um, And... It was occupied by Russia at one point, controlled by Germany during World War II, incorporated into the USSR. It's, it has a, you know, a big history, but um, it's like you'll see it's like kind of near Poland if you look on a map. And so he started out kind of more, more as a musician. He learned how to play tons of instruments. Uh, he studied at the Warsaw Institute of Music. Do you know what kind of pieces he created? Like music? What Classi- was he doing? Classical. Okay. All right. And I'm gonna I'm gonna post some of his pieces in our Substack, uh, oh, and you can actually cool. listen to the music and look at the art, which is oh. absolutely amazing. How and he cool seems is that? Just I know he just seems ahead of his time. And they're mm-hmm. also it feels when I'm reading about symbolism and reading about him and other people, they really weren't fitting in that well like they were like getting yelled at by certain older artists like you're not doing that right and then praised by other ones mm. they were at this crossroads mm. and they were responding and so he's and he's not very well known but i i found some great links to different museums and different websites that really cover him very well and oh, he cool. only he died at 36 he didn't yeah live that was long. but he composed like 300 compositions he's he's very prolific <gasps> he's kind of like van gogh he's kind of like van gogh in that way like this how like did it, fire. Do you know how he died? I didn't get to that yet. Okay. It's probably, could, it's probably, probably sad. Guess. It's probably sad. <laughs> it's probably some disease no one knew a cure for yet. Um, and what so, inspired him? Well, I think it was, I mean, I've never... Uh, MK, what were you inspired by? Tell me. I feel like, I feel like probably sound because it was the thing he did first it mm-hmm. like he liked art but it seemed like he was studying that predominantly in the beginning like his mm-hmm. musical career starts first when you look at him historically right so he composed canons fugues preludes variation cycles for piano a string quartet right and diploma in composition he taught and composed okay. Okay. so he was a musician first and yes i'm fairly certain i've read that he was he had synesthesia that he could see sound and and when you look at his work it makes it tracks it's almost um, like you write the um, the prelude, and then you're like, something's missing. Something. Yeah, missing. I'm gonna get yeah. canvas out. <laughs> yeah, and I am curious. I wish I could talk to him and say, what you know, what would you do? Would you, as you were composing, would you see these images in your mind and paint them? Yeah. Um, and so there are two uh, series of pieces that I found that I thought were very important that I am linking to that I think will be a delight for people to explore. Mm. One of them is called the Sonata of the Sea. There's three oh. pieces, Andante, Allegro, and Finale. And you can actually listen to the music and look at the three pieces. Um, and they are like these glowing. I want to see them in real life. I've only yeah. seen like images online. I want to see them in real life. Um, yeah. But uh, they are like these kind of soft, neutral tones. Perfect for me. I'm oh, um, seeing what flowy. inspires you. Yeah, flowy. Um, very symbolist very there's images in there and you make your make decide what you think they mean mm-hmm. um and then the second one that i included is called the sonata of the serpent and mm. here's where you know this really aligns with me 
I feel like me, I'm just going to call him MK, would have um, gotten along. So the Sonata of the Serpent, there are these two bright green pieces. And he made a Sonata of the Serpent, like song, like a musical mm-hmm. piece. Mm-hmm. The Serpent is a significant ancient Lithuanian creature um, from their original pagan religion in Lithuania. So in Lithu- Lithuanian mythology, the serpent represents the protector of home, familial values, health, and fertility. They're considered to be a kind of entity that protects homes. They treat this particular snake in a respectful manner. They leave it milk and befriend it for protection. And so these two visual works portray the importance of this snake. So it's symbolism to a musical composition and links to historical, cultural parts of the past of that where he was from his homeland and so this is like where why i love symbolism it's it's why i like talking about on this podcast it's myth story which essentially is spirituality the um the backbone the skeleton of a culture and art is a reflection of that Mm -hmm. and tells stories and so mm. and when i look at sir leonis's work it does remind me of tolkien and i don't know if people have ever called tolkien a symbolist but he reminds me of this these they, they remind me of each other mm. so i just feel like there's and, and you know tolkien's always talking about fantasy and escapism and symbolism symbol, symbolism was also a little bit escapist right okay and, and i also want to like quickly just say that there was also this reference to symbolism being decadent because it because it wasn't changing anything it was escaping that's my take anyway that maybe that was part of that description mm. but what about your second yeah. artist um okay well joseph buoys joseph buoys there's a name i recognize going forward um he was born in 1921 okay so he was so he was born around surrealism right yeah when did he was like born as surrealism was being born (laughs) (laughs) interesting and he died in 1986 uh and so 1986 okay yeah and joseph Buys technically isn't a symbolist um he's actually part of the fluxus art movement which he partly made which makes flux capacitor sorry um it's fine that's great uh, but I think he would have appreciated me deciding he was also a symbolist because oh, cool. I, part of his thing was, I think, breaking all the rules. That's the vibe I get from him. Um, Classic because, artist. Yeah, because the quote about Fluxus is, artists did not agree with the authority of museums to determine the value of art. They didn't believe one must be educated to view and understand it. It not only wanted art to be available to the masses, they wanted everyone to produce art all the time. And Yay. it's difficult to define Fluxus as many fluxus artists claim that the act of defining the movement is too limiting right. and reductive. Right. So it's, right. so it's what we were talking about complete. It's all what we're talking about. I the know. movement itself is saying fuck movements, but also, <laughs> so, but also that didn't work. It's no, 2023. It you walk into a gallery and yeah. you do need a fucking degree to understand what's going on. There is still a huge wall between the plebs, the normal people and and this like availability of understanding like you often you need the statement or the guide to you need the story behind the art for a lot of art you actually need more context so i don't know if flux has landed properly because we still have the exact same problems 
But it needed to exist, right? It was a response, again, a reaction. And I think that it fits in here because we are trying to make this accessible and trying to make it exciting and interesting for people to be like, oh, interesting. Like, what names are we giving different styles of art? But also, yeah. And it's chicken and able egg. to break the rules. Yeah. It's like, do people understand art or do we just not give enough time to allow people to think about art? We don't. Yeah. And we make it kind of like academic in a way that's dry. You know, mm-hmm. we, you know, Bruto and I sat through long hour to two hour long lectures at us in art school of yeah. mostly european artists yeah. um and which ironically we've gone for but that's okay that's okay that's okay <laughs> yeah i mean it's just it's a fascinating it's, time it's a fascinating time it's like these movements are important because we have them to latch on to now as we move into this next time which mm. i i'm hoping is going to be more uh open to the real diversity of the human experience. Absolutely. So back to Bowie's. Bowie's, um, Bowie's a strange guy. Uh, he, I, we don't really know his true story. Um, born in he, an intense time. Born in an intense time. Um, born in Germany in 1921, Ugh. and in the time that lead that leads up to World War II, and therefore he, he was, was a young, just. He was a youth. He was in the youth. He was in the Hitler Youth. Because that's what you did. That's yeah. what I mean. He was just that. That was how World War the how the Nazis started was indoctrinating a whole generation of young people. Yeah. Um. And if you didn't, your child came and told on you, and then you got in trouble. If so, if you were a parent, and you were against it. Your child was already indoctrinated, mm-hmm. so your child would turn you in. Mm-hmm. And I could talk about this for hours because I have studied it, but I'm not here to do that. I'm here to share. And he also <laughs> he also didn't use his art as a platform to talk. No. About. Um, he didn't. We checked this out. Nazism. Yeah. He was not a Nazi. He wasn't a Nazi, um, but he might have been associated with some. However, if you're living Fair. in that time, Fair. there's no, I mean, I don't know. It's complicated, but Let's we're looking at his art. some judgment for a moment. Yeah. And we're going to look at his art. Yeah. Because his art makes you think he would not be. He was into um, democratization, which yeah. is not at all empirical so yeah no so it's it's interesting he was born in a complicated time therefore everything's complicated when we talk about this man but word um he came up with a myth about himself we don't know if it's a true myth we don't know if it's real which actually amuses me a little bit i love that shit (laughs) so he the the core of the story is his origin story um so just as a little thing he didn't have a lot of exposure to art born in a small german town of cleve um, he, like I said, we said he volunteered for the Luftwaffe, the Nazi Air Force. He was a radio operator. And then in two years later in 1944, he says he was on a plane that crashed and he could have died were it not for a group of Tartars who found him and cared for him, put him on a sled and wrapped his body in felt and fat to warm it. Mm. Had it not been for those Tartars, I would not be alive today, he said in 1979 speaking to a Guggenheim Museum curator. But, uh, you know, there have been historians who've been like, I really don't think that's possible. I don't think that that's true. Um, Why is there a photo of you? How did they take a picture of you? So it sounds like, it sounds like he, we don't know quite what the deal is. However, I find it fascinating. It's almost like he did it on purpose to start his myth himself, that he, like, I don't understand where it came from. I don't understand if he was like, hmm, felt, fat, things to keep me warm, 
a symbol of life. I, you know, I, I don't know. Um, but he, but the reason I'm telling that story, which seems very random and strange, is that he used those symbols materials. in his work. Therefore, forward those materials. Yep, uh, okay. he physically used them. So, fat like, there's actually and fat and felt. Yeah, among other things. Um, and so he ran with it. Um, it seems like he was in a British internment camp, which makes sense because he was part of fighting in that war. And then he went to study art. And um, here are some things he said that I think are very important. Sculpture must always obstinately question the basic premise of the prevailing culture. Mm -hmm. He even made something in criticism of the Holocaust. And, you know, he, he refer he, you know, he talked about that in his art. This is the function of all art, which society is always trying to suppress, but it's impossible to suppress it. Um, and he also said, uh, <laughs> I just like this to me, this is like part of his persona. They interviewed him in the same interview in art forum, which is like a magazine, I think. Mm -hmm. Um, he had done this piece where he was holding a dead hare in his hands, like a dead rabbit. And I like in, he, he was doing this performance piece and it was about, it felt like it was about, I don't know, to me, it was about like connecting with nature and grief, but I, you know, mm. I'm sure we could delve into it, but it was a performance piece. So he was actually cradling a dead animal, a dead rabbit. Oh, right. Yeah. He was a performance artist. He was a performance artist. And he said, what's performance he, art for people that might, we might be losing? Performance art is mm. a performance where you are either engaging with an object or creating something in public. It's like a, I want to say it's like a play, but it's like a mini play that doesn't necessarily have a story. It, it does consist or of dialogue or dialogue or lack of dialogue or, you know, it's, it's an event. It's, it's happening. It's where you've created an experience for people to see. And that is the art itself. And the only way you can record it is by taking a picture or, or filming it. Um, but it's kind of temporary. Nice. Unless you leave behind some kind of drawing or Artifact. something. Right. Um, thank you for having me define that. So his quote around this performance piece that he did where he was holding a rabbit. He said he developed a political party for animals with himself as the leader. And the interviewer said, you're crazy. And Bowie's responded, and therefore I'm a very mighty man. Mm. Mightier than Nixon. <laughs> Hell yeah. So this, this is also the birth of um, Neo-Druidism and Wicca. Mm. So Right. It has to be. Deeply influenced by this like return to our um, ancestral primordial um, knowledge, animism. Yes. And I actually wrote um, when I was delving into buoys that I asked the question, was he an animist? And I think that he probably was because the, the piece that I really love the most um, is there's you can find images of him. There's a, a performance he did. It's his most famous piece. Mm -hmm. And it's called I Like America and America Likes Me. And it was done in 1974. And he was and, and they and they call it like a ritual. And this is where you're when you're saying it's like kind of like um, Wicca, like it was there was something ritualistic about it. He was taken from an airport to New York's Rene Block Gallery. He never sets foot on the ground of America. They put bring him in on a stretcher. So it's a whole event. He like gets taken into this gallery. He confines himself to the space with a coyote. Mm -hmm. A real coyote, a live I one. This. I remember this. For a this. week, for a week, yeah. And for much of the time, he covers himself in felt. He has a crooked staff. He sticks it out towards the animal. 
Yeah, he looks like a blanket monster. Yeah, he does. Yeah, you can't even see him. And the coyote is like antagonistic, of course, towards him. But eventually they developed companionship with each other. Like they became friends because it was like a week. And after it was ended, they took him back to Germany by ambulance. Like they took him to the airport by ambulance. Then he flew back. And like bonkers. So here's what I take from it. With all of his controversy and all of his mystery and why I chose him and why I linked him, put him in the symbolist category, felt protection, animal relationships, dead or alive, the power of symbols and how they are magical talismans of the times we are in. Because he talked a lot about healing culture, Mm. about healing where we were, the space we were in, using art to heal, the healing power of relating to other creatures. And I, I don't think I fully understand him. But when I look at what he does from where I sit, some of those those things really, really appeal to me. And I think that, you know, when I'm working with flannel, as I've spoken about before, mm-hmm. I think I would have a com- I would be able to have a conversation with him <sighs> about why when I'm using this, he helped me understand what I was doing. Wow. He gave me context, right? Like I, you know, when I look, he also wrapped a piano and felt, you know, he did, a, a, yeah, it felt, you know, you're taking this, and he created a mythology around it that has saved his life. You know, maybe maybe a part of that story is true, maybe not. But, like, for me, the texture of flannel does, in a way, I don't want to say it saves my life. I don't need to be dramatic. But it does soothe me. It's restorative. Me. It's, it's restorative. Yes. And I am the product of generations of trauma. So I'm heal- I'm in, when I'm making art mm-hmm. and I'm channeling and I'm you know, transforming grief, I am using an, an object, I'm using a, f- a material to help me do that. And so I think him identifying that, using these symbols as talismans, as storytelling tools, I yeah. think that that's also symbolist. So that's um, great. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that's so great. Oh, thank you so much <laughs> for that amazing. It was like, an, it, it really challenged the our concept of an art lesson i gotta say that was just good storytelling was it i hope it was more interesting than what we got (laughs) (laughs) and we are going and it could be very easy for rudo and i to talk for hours about this so we have worked really hard um and i will include tons of links if you would like to delve into those two people because they that i just gave you a small bit there's so much Mm. um and so with that i would now like to hear the artist that you chose you chose to go outside of surrealism and chose two different artists so indeed Indeed. So my artist number one is Lee Bontecu. She was born in 1931 and only died last year at 91. Well, I didn't know that. Yeah. She was real big in the art scene in the 60s, which for anyone who doesn't know, in New York in the 60s, the art was massively dominated by these like really egoic, super cocky, super stuck up men. <laughs> so annoying. And everyone at purchase was like, Jackson yeah. Pollock. <laughs> Rauschenberg. Yeah. So she made it big in a time when women, we were not only second class citizens, but making art and just being ignored. But she made it big. She was showing at all the big New York galleries um, and she has this really, really cool origin story. We talk about myth that you were talking about, Bowie's talking about his discovery of 
um, felt. Well, Lee Bontague discovered this distinctive black, sooty, inky depth to her drawings and paintings on accident. She was at a fellowship, a Fulbright in uh, Rome, and she was doing, she was a welder, she was a sculptor, and she was doing, she was in the metal workshop, and um, she was fucking with her tank, the the welding tank, and the oxygen levels went down, and this black soot spewed out of her tool. And she, like, touched it. It was on the floor, and it was, like, the blackest of black. She had never seen, like, charcoal. Nothing had ever come close to the the blackness, this, like, matte it sucked you in. And she was like, I've got to play with this. So during this time, found art and like non-traditional art material was a very big deal. Mm-hmm. So she's right on cue in terms of Bontecue finding. <laughs> I was wondering if you were going to say that. Thank you. <laughs> finding something on accident and then like going with it. And so she does sculpture. She does wall hangings, these like mounted sculptural, like they're like, is it a painting? Is it sculpture? Who knows? And what's very, very common. And like, she has such a huge art. um, What do you call it? Like timeline. She was just constantly making art, but there is a consistency of this black void, this kind of like abyss in the middle of her pieces. So she does these like sculpted Nautilus um, curved egg-like womb-like structures. They look almost like a spaceship window. But in the, mid- in the middle of them all is this, the blackest of black. And so this black was created um, with this soot and she was really exploring outer space, other worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, so by both of my artists, I noticed have the word scapes in their interesting she said worldscapes she was making worldscapes so she was exploring other worlds outer space through her work um she does these like very cool mobiles um and they're like really rough like you can see all the pieces that she used to make out of them they're not like refined and slick and they're but they're somehow like delicate and unearthly and beautiful and yeah. So part of why I like her is because A, she was a badass woman. Um, she made things that to me feel deeply feminine, as in like curved egg, womb, void, abyss, um, dark, you know, cave-like, which to me is is feminine, but that's my lens. Her lens, if I if she were here and I were like, hey Lee, you've you know, you've had some weird reactions to being called a feminist artist. And she'd probably be like, yeah, because I'm not. It shouldn't matter that I'm a woman. I'm making art. Yeah. And so that. some people lean in to the feminist agenda, which is like, no, we should be treated equally. Therefore, I am pushing for this. But she was just like, nah, not playing anybody's game but my own. And in fact, at the height of her career, she peaced out. She left. Really? Yeah. Just like, she's like, I'm done. Yeah. She's like, fuck this. This is way (laughs) too toxic. Yeah, it is. Moved to Pennsylvania. Oh, no, no. She first just moved to Brooklyn and taught at Brooklyn College. Nice. So she was an art teacher. She's like, I'm not going to 
be part of this like elitist art scene anymore. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just going to teach. And apparently she was a nice teacher. She did not bring people to their knees was Good. the phrase. And I'm, if I'm thinking about the blessing that you and I had with learning art in New York Judy and Bernstein. having a mix of people that were not cruel to us, that those people are very important. So yep. thank you to the art teachers who do not feel like you have to destroy someone to yep. create someone. <laughs> Judy and Phil and yeah. Jed Divine. Exactly. So she's of that. I love that. She's of that ilk. Yeah. Um, yep. And then she moved to Pennsylvania and lived on a farm for 30 years Good for and her. had retrospectives, but she declined all invitations to show for like 50 years. Did she still make stuff? It just didn't show. Yeah. It? Yeah, yeah. Nice. Yeah. Good for so her. So when, yeah. when MoMA showed her work, um, Museum of Modern Art in New York City, um, <clears throat> they did a retrospective, but also new work. And I saw it in 2003. That was like my second year of art school. And my entire world just exploded because I just saw what was possible. Do you feel like she's a little sci-fi too? Because yes. I sometimes think her stuff is like spaceships. Yeah. yeah. Like it's it's worth the look. It's some amazing work. Yeah. And it's worth trying to get in front of one of her pieces because the yeah. the void, the inky blackness, it's like a tractor beam. It yeah. pulls you it in. Is. For all my Ithaca friends, I'm pretty sure there's one in the Johnson Museum at Cornell. Okay. I don't know why the balloons just showed up. <laughs> Sorry. For our listeners, we just saw, we see, we can see each other, but you can't see us, but we just saw balloons fly in the screen and we don't know why. <laughs> uh, Maybe anyways. it's all our, our artists saying, yeah. hey, we're happy you're talking oh, about us. Holy Bontecue, we love you. Thank yeah. You. So also what's very cool is a lot of her work is untitled, which lets you oh. decide what you're seeing. Bring your own. Yeah. yeah. She refused to be boxed in. Loved I was going to ask, I was going to ask, do they put her in a category though, against her will? What do they say she is? Abstract expressionism-ish, because okay. she was working within that time frame, like we were talking about. Yeah. But she's not. Yeah. I mean, I would call her, feels a little symbolist, but yeah. Yeah. We're yeah. surreal. Um, I love so this. That is artist number one. Artist number one. Now and we're then... going completely in a different direction. Okay. Take us there. <laughs> um, my second artist is James Terrell. Anyone who knows me is not going to be surprised by this. But unless you're an art geek, you probably don't know James Terrell. Um, he was born in 1943. And for now, let's just say that he was in installation art. What is installation art? Oh, God. One of our favorite things. It really is. Um, mm -hmm. But it just, it's one of those things that actually is really hard to talk about without sounding so poncy. <laughs> I mean, just talk about it, that it's whimsical and magical because it is. It's a world. So It's a world. Yeah, You're building a world. Mm -hmm. Installation art can be, so the idea is like you walk into a gallery and you see pictures on a wall or you see sculptures being lit from like special track lighting. And like that's your perception of art, right? And now we're in digital art. So like AI, computer graphics, photography, like that's your idea of art. And it's usually hanging or visual on a screen. Installation art is like walking into a theater that you're now a part of. You're walking onto a stage. You're in a world. You are immersed in something. And think, and you're interacting with it. Sometimes you can touch it. Sometimes you can smell it. Sometimes you can hear it. So installation art is huge in terms of 
the genre, but what's true about it is that you're part of the dimensionality of it. It's not yeah. like something hanging on a wall. You're in it. You become part of the art. And um, there are two different distinct categories of installation art. And uh, my favorite is site specific. Now, that is a concept of like, um, so think of um, Stonehenge. <laughs> like, Love it. I still want to It go. is a <laughs> thing reacting to the location of where it mm. is. Yep. It's a direct conversation Gr with where it is. That's a great description. Yep. And it can only happen there. Yep. You know, if it's another location, then that's another piece. It changes. So it. site specific is specific to that site. Mm -hmm. And James Terrell is very much a site specific artist. Why? Because he is working with light. I love so light. <laughs> we are moving. So we have been incrementally toying, uh, revolving around a universe of art not being necessarily something that's telling a story or an object or depicting an object. We're getting closer to art as the experience. Art talking about a singular abstract thing. So with James Terrell, he is literally talking about the phenomenon of seeing. So his earliest work is like light projected um, and he was really inspired by Rothko, which is an abstract expressionism. Love Rothko. Rothko is very famous for color, for color blocks, color field. So he would make these huge canvases of these squares of color and you are just experiencing the tone and they're yeah. very, very powerful and when you're around them. If you're not, if you see them online, they're different. If you see them in person, you'll understand. Yeah. Saying. But also some people are not as um sensitive brought to their knees by this experience yeah. but if yeah. you were very sensitive to color and very sensitive to energy you're going to get bowled over so yeah um james Terrell is looking at rothko because obviously he was born after rothko's height of fame and he was like i want to do that and then he realized that because he had seen rothko's pieces in an art class projected light when he actually got in front of a rothko he was like oh this isn't hitting the same things for me and he started playing around with light projections because he realized it was actually the light it was the illumination and then he started getting in because he has a degree in psychology psychoanalysis of course. of course he was like okay but there's like actual optical science happening here so i want to get to the experience of being physically shook by what you can see. And so he would make things that were optical illusions. He would project light in such a way that made you feel like you were about to run into a wall, but it was like an open room with, with light projected in such a way. And so you would walk towards it and be like, oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. And then you would keep walking and you'd be past it. There is, there is, it's very hard to explain this guy because you have to experience his art. But imagine an artist that is more interested and the and the physical the physicality of you experiencing light. <laughs> so you're now part of the art because it's your eyeballs telling the story. Um, so he his work is called skyscapes. Oh, I love this. So um, he's not like an earthworks person who is who is manipulating matter to have you be more connected to earth. He's manipulating light to make you more connected to the heavens. To, oh. to the sky. He said he wanted to bring the sun and the moon to you. Oh. Uh, I know. <laughs> and both Rudo and I work with light. So yeah. it makes a lot of sense. Oh, that's yeah. really cool. 
Yeah. So the idea of things being illuminated and like your eye um, adjusting to something and therefore making the art more important is just very cool. And um, yeah, so James Terrell is still alive and he's been given like heaps of medals, um, heaps of accolades. He He's like a really cool um, character in terms of using the old and the new. So he's always using cutting edge technology to create the things that he's creating. Um, but because he's site, site specific, this is like, you know, the modern day Stonehenge, like the idea of like you being part of this ancient primordial um, sitting with something. And like most of his stuff, you really have to sit down and like watch light change. You know, he's making cuttings out of a ceiling. And so you're watching um, the noon sun turn into the evening sun and the whole room changes because of that. So it's like this great synthesis of like what makes art as ancient as ancient can be, but also using cutting edge technology to achieve unbelievable effects. And people that were affected by James Terrell have gone on to make really incredible light sculptures and concept art around light and shadow. Do you think you've been affected artistically by him? Massively. Massively. Share. Do share. So the sculpture professor that taught me about James Turrell goes hand in hand with why James Turrell is so important to me. Um, Greg Locke taught, taught all of us to investigate reality. He was like, do not take for granted that you are sitting in a room that has been built under concise instructions. You are inside of a thing. Feel the walls, feel the structure around you. It's real your relationship to it, the proportion of your body size to the proportion of this room. Look around. Try to figure out how many of you could fit into here. He was always asking us to be as alert to reality as possible. Be awake. Be alive. Investigate where you sit in relation to everything else. And then he talked about James Terrell as like, you know, the extension of that phenomena. As in, we take for granted that the sun shines above us and changes our ability to see from sunup to sundown. And this guy capitalized on that in a way that was both excellent in form, but excellent in it's changing your relationship to art and being alive. You know, it's meditative. It's real. It's, but also some, like, somehow you're being like integrated into the natural world because you're now sitting and being present with it. Yeah. And and so when I think about your work, you've made your stalagmite, stalactite, light lamps. You've made a yes. site-specific piece that kind of yes. integrated at that festival with the darkness yeah. and the light. All of the philosophies that these guys were playing around with, um, I bring into the work that I do. Per- they were percolating in your head. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Beautiful. And I mean, I could talk about light is everything. Mm-hmm. You know, and yeah. the absence of light is also everything. Lee Bontecue. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's interesting. The two artists you chose, um, well, I guess Bowie is also was kind of around that time. But I'm thinking about the Lithuanian artist, Sir Leonis, and he was this like early 
earlier artist who was starting to think about things in this way. You know what I mean? He was playing with his paintings. Light is definitely a piece in his work, but it's just paintings and, um, but, and music. And then think about with technology and everything. Mm-hmm. What, I'm, what I'm getting at is that everything starts somewhere. And it's really interesting to look at where it begins and these concepts of symbolism and surrealism and what is re- what is art really and what's the spiritual um, mm. side and what's where are dreams coming into play. And mm. then we fast forward to 40s and the 50s and the 60s and we're responding. We're using light now and we're yeah. responding. We're learning more about psychology and how light and color affect us. And mm. it's like you can write love letters to these artists because Absolutely. they're feeding into you and me now. And Absolutely. other people, you know, and so we're all kind of connected. And that's the beauty of art movements, I think, that we really wanted to get from this episode was that while they can be limiting and why they have in some ways been creating this frustrating limitation so not everyone seems to be able to access it, there's some real beauty in there if we learn how to harness it correctly. And really, it's about the collective consciousness and how creatives are very much more connected than we realize. Mm-hmm across time and space, not just mm-hmm. in our current time, because they're with us now in this conversation and they've come into play and they've affected us. And then my students and whoever comes, your son and whoever comes after us will yeah. be affected too. So it's a really beautiful timeline, love story of creative expression and conversation. I agree. Yeah. Okay. So last thoughts. If you were to, in the voice of your movement, give one piece of life advice based solidly out of that art movement. So for you, symbolism, what's a good thing, philosophical thing to hold on to as a symbolist? You're, you're a symbolist artist, you know, in that voice, talk, talk to us, our dear listeners about what to take away. There is more to reality than what we're told to believe there is. Mm. There's more, I think that's what, that's what the symbolists were about. They were like, F this noise. There's so much going on that is beautiful and and also not beautiful that we need to pay attention to, that we need to listen to and incorporate into our lives because we're missing half of it. And that's what I think symbolism is about. And I think it's an important life lesson that it's not just cut and dry, linear, balancing the checkbook. It's emotional currents. It's other beings and life forces. It's animals. It's nature. Because we are nature. There's, we're not separate. We're part of it. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Surrealism? Right. As a surrealist, I encourage you to do automatic writing every day to allow your inner world to reach the surface. And I would say pay attention to your dreams and however you experience dreams in waking life or in sleep. Thank you so much, artists who joined us today. <clears throat> yeah. Thank you, Sir Leonis and Buies and Terrell and Bontecue for coming to our podcast today. <laughs> <laughs> You're welcome. <laughs> All that right, was let's, them. let's read that was them. out. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Okay. Well, um, thank you so much for listening and, and being with us today. Thank you, Bjorn, for editing our show. Check out the Magic Hour Dreamcast on Substack to get an editorial treat for each episode. The show is produced by Rudo and I. We hope you're enjoying it. 
Feel free to send us a note if you'd like us to cover something or if you'd like to be a guest. And you can upgrade to be a paid subscriber at any time on the Magic Hour Substack. Paid subscribers are like fairy godparents. We'll be sending you seasonal gifts just for you. If you found us on YouTube, be sure to like, subscribe, and recommend to us, 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 to your friends. Our production strategy doesn't involve ads, so we rely on your sweet voices to spread the word. And the music we use for our podcast is called Whimsical Aliens. It was written and performed by Alejandro Bernard from Ithaca, New York. You can find him on YouTube, Patreon, and Instagram. Just follow our links. And as always, join us again in a few weeks where magic, myth, creativity, and friendships are always woven together through each episode. Until then, stay magical. Mm -hmm.